This is Lex Kibernetica, the cyber law podcast by the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. Lex Kibernetica. Freedom of speech is um, almost a sacred thing in the United States and uh, revered in, in many uh, democratic countries. But there is, in recent years, uh, talk about hate speech and its dangers and ways to prevent it or even uh, mitigate it. And that's what we're going to talk about in uh, this episode of Lex Kibernetica. But first, let's try to define what hate speech is with our first guest, Susan Benish, a law professor and founding director of the Dangerous Speech Project. Hello, Susan. Welcome to our show. Could you define the the main differences uh, between online and offline hate speech? Speech online can circulate to a large number of people very quickly, even though it may be produced and disseminated by somebody completely unknown to all of those people. But one can make an army of bots and influence lots of actual people all that way. There's one other important characteristic of online hate speech that is very little notice, and that is that offline, all of us humans are used to talking in a certain way to the people we regard as our own people. That is not the way you would speak if you were standing in a public place. Maybe a man might tell a joke to a group of men he knows well uh, that makes fun of women in a way that he would not uh, tell it if he knew that women were listening. What happens online is that uh, this same man posts this joke on Facebook, and he thinks it's okay because, you know, his Facebook friends will see it and they will think it's funny and that's okay. Um, sooner or later, what often happens, though, is that some darn woman or even some man who, who, who disapproves of the joke sees it and then reports it to Facebook or reports it to somebody else and eventually... The guy who originally posted it gets this content taken down as hate speech. This is what some other uh, scholars, uh, such as the wonderful Dana Boyd, have labeled context collapse. All of us, when we express ourselves online in a direct message or on WhatsApp or some other uh, platform that is truly private, we are subject to the possibility of being held accountable for what other people regard as hate speech and are opposed to. The vast majority of humans, because of their socialization, have felt that it was perfectly okay to express at least disdain, if not even stronger negative opinions about other groups of people. Think back historically. Read the Old Testament. You know, that is not to say that it's natural. For people, no, no human baby has ever been born despising another person or another group of people. Uh, uh, people have been taught to think that way. The fact that lots of us now uh, believe that it's bad to despise other people because of the group they belong to, in, in my view, is, is uh, cause for optimism. It's a, a, a good development. So that's one thing. When we talk about technical solutions to online hate speech, I'm, I'm pretty skeptical. Since the main technical solution that gets discussed almost all the time is trying to find it and take it away, trying to delete it all. That is, first of all, much more difficult than it sounds since um, humans are 
marvelously creative in the ways that they express themselves. So you can't just search for a list of words, for example. Uh, I have tried to, to build uh, uh, software to detect hate speech and um, found that you get an awful lot of false positives and false negatives. In other words, you detect lots of stuff that isn't hate speech and fail to find stuff that is hate speech because people can say terrible, terrible things, for example, by mocking the accent of members of the other group. That's just one example. Um, so detecting it is very difficult. Uh, taking it down is not really a solution since it doesn't decrease the rate at which the people who, who put it up in the first place continue to do that. And so there are some people who post awful content online who are only invigorated by seeing their stuff taken down. They regard it as a badge of honor and they, they see it as something like a sport. You know, can they can they post more awful content at a faster rate than uh, it's being taken down? Um, so the real solution, of course, is to decrease the rate at which people are putting it up in the first place. And that requires the same kind of methods that we humans have been using for a long time to teach people not to behave badly. You have to teach them. You have to persuade them that they will be socially sanctioned for doing such a thing. We have not yet learned very well how to bring to bear social rules online. Um, but there's plenty of room for uh, improving that. And then there are also ways of finding the people who are posting terrible content and holding them to account offline. For example, there, uh, there is a man who lives in Texas who was um, posting online with an appalling uh, pseudonym based on the Holocaust. Um, and Robert Bowers, the man who committed the massacre at the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh, was an avid follower of this man in Texas. Uh, the man in Texas, of course, was was trying to hide, um, but a very determined journalist managed to find him and uh, identify him by his real name and discovered that he uh, was working in an auto parts store outside of Waco, Texas. So the journalist called the man and, and his posting of terrible, including anti-Semitic content online, dropped precipitously. Why? Because he has children and he sends them to school and he lives in a place where he has neighbors. In other words, he didn't want the people he lived among offline to know what he was doing online. It's not very hard to hide your identity. It's not very hard to create an army of bots uh, that post hate speech. Is the fact that technology and the Internet make uh, hate speech easier to uh, disseminate, to propagate, does that mean we have to change the paradigm of how we treat hate speech uh, in the sense that if in the past it was uh, um, bearable, it was a part of uh, having a democracy and having free speech, today maybe it's detrimental, maybe it's something that we cannot afford to have anymore. Do you think hate speech was bearable in Germany in the 1930s? Probably not. 
There was no internet at the time. The answer is no, I don't think it's a new paradigm. You know, when the printing press uh, was invented, that dramatically increased um, the rate and the range with which people could communicate to other people who could read. And it was terribly alarming, um, as was the advent of radio and television and so forth, um, to people who were afraid of the awful, of what they regarded as awful content that was being disseminated by means of this new technology. We, we have to be careful in um, avoiding a kind of inchoate panic about the Internet. It's, it's true that content can be spread by bot armies. It's also not that difficult to detect bot armies, actually. And it's true that one can hide one's identity online. Um, to do it very well actually takes quite quite some effort. It's not to say that, that unmasking people who are posting terrible hate speech is a solution by itself. I'm just trying to illustrate that there are um, quite a lot of possibilities that have not been sufficiently explored. And from your experience and what you've learned about uh, hate speech or, uh, as you call it, dangerous speech, what are the solutions? What can be done besides, uh, obviously, education and um, um, public shaming of, uh, of people who propagate it? It's interesting. You say, obviously, education. Uh, okay. There has been almost no effort in that regard, and that is by far the most powerful tool. People say education as if, Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, sure, education. <laughs> but what we should be saying is, oh, yeah, yeah, sure, deletion. Because deletion does not accomplish anything much. By the time bad content gets deleted, usually significant harm has already been done. And uh, prior censorship would be a disaster for freedom of expression. Except in cases where a whole society begins to shift the wrong way, um, as in Germany in the 1930s, very often with the strong encouragement of a government. In, in cases other than that, education, especially education of children and public shaming are exactly the powerful tools that we humans have always used against hate speech. So there isn't any reason to dump them now that we are concerned about online hate speech. That's one thing. Then there are other very interesting phenomena, such as that Humans love to be part of groups. I'm now drawing on significant bodies of social science research. And the way in which you generally maintain your belonging in a group is to follow its rules of one kind or another. Well, this is an enormously powerful engine of human behavior, and it's one of the main reasons why people follow rules, perhaps stronger than formal law even. Um, so online, people do not usually feel constrained by group rules, but it does sometimes happen and could happen a great deal more. You know, um, internet companies, social media companies all have rules that even people who generally behave quite well don't pay any attention to those rules. So a very simple and easy intervention that social media companies could do is to make a little more effort to write the rules in a, in a coherent way and enforce them more strongly on people who break them. And many people do assume that uh, the people who put up hate speech are highly dedicated, highly malevolent, 
stereotypical trolls. We, we in, in the States, we have this phrase, troll in his mother's basement, you know? Mm-hmm. Data from the social media companies show that quite a lot of online hate speech is produced instead by people who do it just occasionally. Even though they post terrible stuff, they don't do it very often. So there seems to be what is known in, in math as a power law distribution. A small number of people do a lot of whatever the behavior is. And then a very large number of people do just a little bit. That's, again, illustrates for us two different ways of greatly diminishing online hate speech. And what would those be? One would be to stop those guys in their, in their mother's basements or wherever they are who are doing a tremendous amount of it. But then what about the huge number of people who do it just occasionally? If you could just slightly improve their behavior, you'd have actually a very, very powerful positive effect. And they could be influenced by feeling some social pressure, feeling the rules, much more likely than, than, the, than these sort of super hardcore trolls. What I would do if I were running a social media company is to take some steps, like, like really working very hard to detect those hardcore guys who are producing a lot of awful content. And if I were a journalist, I would put a lot of effort into chasing the relatively small number of those and confronting them. I would send, you know, the FBI to knock on their doors offline. And then separately, I would do uh, online interventions to try to shift even just a little bit um, the behavior of the large number of people who are posting hate speech sometimes. Because I think I don't need to send FBI agents to them. I think I can do it by nudging them. You've probably heard about the very interesting research on, on nudging people to shift their behavior. Susan Benish, thank you very much. You are most welcome. Online hate speech is one of the most uh, discussed subjects in recent years. Today we have with us someone who uh, has suggestions uh, for platforms how to fix that. Hello, Rote Medzini, a PhD candidate at the Hebrew University at both the Fetterman School of Public Policy and the Fetterman Research Center for Cybersecurity. How does your research define hate speech? I worked with the Israeli Democracy Institute with Dr. Tila Schwarz-Altschuler on a project which was supported also by Yad Vashem on how we should handle hate speech on social media. Basically, what we did, we surveyed the international treaties that defined uh, hate speech. And we also relied on the research by Andrew Sellers from Berkman uh, Center in the Harvard University. And we tried to understand how both the law in several states, as well as international treaties and online platforms defined hate speech, because we wanted to understand what will be a common criteria to all the platforms. But what we did as a further step was basically to create five criteria they need to think about when they think about how they should define their uh, aid speech policies for their specific needs. What are those criteria? So the most basic criteria we think about are protected group. Deciding, for example, on the minimum intrusive policy will be to protect only race, ethnicity, and uh, religious group. But you can develop your policy to, and better include, for example, decisions like, should I protect gender or not? Or what do I do with political groups? Should I protect them or not? So as long as I add more groups, I become more intrusive because the mere fact is that 
I will take down more content if I do that. Our second criteria addresses the definition of expression of hatred. And we model that criterion based on a range from closed list of definitions all the way through uh, using computational mechanisms and understanding the context-based approach to addressing hate speech. So what we figure out with small companies, they can go to the minimum requirement needed. So that will be, for example, looking on Wikipedia for a list of slurs and simply decide. If I see a word that is posted on that list of slurs on my platforms, I will take it down. But it's a very blunt tool. A small company might prefer to use a closed list of definitions rather than try to address the content within its context. And on the other end, if you are Facebook, if you are Google, if you are Twitter, when you have the capabilities to actually develop this apparatus that can handle the different content within the context, then you might figure out and tell Facebook and the other companies that they require more than just a closed list of words. Every company has its own manager, has its own interest in mind, their own business models. They should take the model that we are offering and basically decide what is the right thing for them in order to better regulate content and hate speech on the web. The third criteria deals with speech that causes harm. If the basic one is physical, a more developed policy will be to include also mental harm. And the last option is non-physical and indirect mental harm. What do you do when the harm is actually financial? What does it mean where you are fired from work somehow indirectly because of the fact that you were addressed somehow online on a post of hate speech? And then there is the fourth criteria, which is uh, directly related, is the intent to harm. And there we figure out, so you can have different forms of intent. So you can have explicit intent, someone actually saying something meaning to harm someone. But you might have implicit intent. So you might not say that, but... Hints to it. It hints to it somehow, right. And so when you visualize the policy, you might figure out that there are different uh, content that you might approve and might not. So we wanted to be able to, again, show the managers what are the differences. And the most extreme and the more uh, intrusive content that you might take down and say, I ignore intent completely. So I don't care. The moment that you posted something that is hate speech, I don't care if you you had an intent, it was implicit or explicit, I'm going to take down the content completely, regardless of the fact that you had intent in mind or not. The final criterion is socially undesirable action. So the most basic criteria is actually violence, calling to someone to hurt someone else. But... Another criteria might be that that manager might choose will be rioting and the breach of peace as some countries define this. And the last criteria that we offer for people is actually non-physical actions. Interestingly, one thing that we saw as we wrote the paper is that we always conceptualize policy that it's addressing with Western countries. And when you put that policy paper in a context of Asia or Africa, you might get different results. And this is why when we decided on the policy paper and the recommendation, we actually thought of not on lawmakers, but actually the platforms and the managers, because we we figure out that the platforms, other than actually developing the policy and then implementing with the company, might decide it has to do some adjustments based on different countries. Uh, One of the biggest problems of uh, such... um 
policies is that you don't know as a user what you did wrong. They're very general. And when content is removed, you're usually not told what exactly you did. You're just told that you are in a foul of the rules of the platform. Right, exactly. And the bigger problem that we usually identify is what happens when one user decides that another user posted hate speech. So you might have a case that it's actually hate speech. But another possibility is that that the user simply didn't like the, the other person. He didn't agree with the statement and simply went, I don't know, for example, for Facebook and asked for them to take it down. So the last step that we offer company to do is improve their transparency mechanism. And that basically enabled both users to be aware of what was the decision made. We decided to take it down. We decided to warn the person that posted the post that violated our community standard. We decided to kick him off the platforms completely, for example, for three months, or we actually decided to kick him from the platform completely and not allowing him to come back at all. But that decision has to be transparent to both sides. They don't have to be aware of the person that actually notified them. And so it can be a police officer, it can be a civil society, but it can also be a person. But be aware of the fact that you should warn the person posting a post that someone reported it because it cannot be uh, expelled without a reason. And of course, the platforms can warn him. It can also tell them, uh, listen, you need to take down the post yourself. So you need to understand that what you did was wrong. And if you don't do that, we will take down the post for you. Thank you very much. Thank you. One of the hardest problems of fighting online hate speech is defining and identifying it using automated tools. We'll talk about this challenge with our next guest. Omri Abend, faculty member at the Hebrew University, working in the Department of Computer Science and Cognitive Science, researching natural language processing. How do you suggest tackling this issue? I've recently taken interest in... Uh Um, looking into how to apply NLP, natural language processing tools, for the detection of hate speech. And our angle um, in approaching this topic is to separate the task of hate speech detection into two steps. The first step would be to identify what words, what patterns, what legends, What, you know, what body of knowledge may be related to hateful posts. So, for instance, I would like to identify racial slurs, racial stereotypes, how these are triggered, if there are specific words, if there are specific patterns of the language that trigger them. I would like to know about stories that are often used in the context of hateful speech, you know, such as anti-Semitic uh, legends of sorts. The second step, is then to take text posted on social media and build an automatic tool that is able to map this body of text, this post, into my set of types, into this knowledge base of potentially hateful expressions, words, patterns, uh, and so on. Uh, by this, we hope to obtain more control over the detection. So it's not simply... That I take in a blog post and have some black box that uses machine learning to give me a label, but rather using this technology that we're seeking to develop 
we can get a richer picture, a richer representation of what's inside that blog post without reading it. Naturally, the easiest way to go about these things would be to try and identify words. Some words are incredibly offensive, and when you spot them, you have a pretty good cue that this is something you want to flag. So building lists and applying them, of course, is, is easy. You can do it on a large scale. It takes quite a bit of human effort to, to build those lists, and therefore, the first step of this two-step approach that, that I talked about, the one of inducing these lists or finding these lists from text, that might not be so easy. But the second part, which just applies them, is completely straightforward. Obviously, this is not enough, because some things you would definitely want to flag need some more sophisticated analysis of the text. You know? so, so one step further would be to look at something uh, like what we call in NLP uh, word sense disambiguation, right? You have the particular word, you know, it's ambiguous. So for instance, think of the word Talmudic. This word, we might want to, uh, to disambiguate it, and it might not be very difficult because these two types of posts, you know, by the Talmud researchers and by Nazis, they look very different in all sorts of ways. Uh, now, that's still not enough, right? You could think, and there are certainly cases, uh, where you want to know something about the syntax of the language. These things are still tools that we have in NLP. We have tools for, for syntactic uh, analysis. But of course, once things get more and more implicit, right? so you're not actually stating these infl potentially inflammatory words, but you're more kind of insinuating or you're tapping into the knowledge that the speaker has. What we call a dog whistle. Something that is not overtly uh, racist, but is racist, in fact. Yeah, right. So, for instance, you could talk a lot about Jewish dominance, say, in the banking trade. You're walking on a thin line there, and of course, there these, these things need to be much more sophisticated in order to, uh, to achieve good, good results. But in the first uh, step of making the lists of the words of the uh, bases of that algorithm, you will need speakers of that language to do the work, and then you're really reliant not only on the data set that is available to them, but also on their integrity. So, of course, you're right. So when you build a machine learning system, right, and most of AI today is built on, on machine learning, you often need some kind of human supervision. But it's uh, a big question of what form this human supervision uh, will take. You could have very uh, direct supervision where you take people, you know, you give them some data and they have to tell you, okay, uh, this is what I found in this data set. These are the hateful ones. They're hateful because of A, B, and C and perhaps compiling this and so on. One other possibility that we're exploring is to look at two data sets. Say you take Twitter. So it will be a very large and inclusive set of tweets most of which, you know, maybe only a negligible uh, amount of which would be hate speech because we just take them randomly out of Twitter. Uh, and you will have another data set uh, which you have to some extent filtered or curated, perhaps using semi-automatic or perhaps fully automatic methods. And then what you're trying to do is try to identify what's different between this data set, which you know contains a lot of hateful expressions, and the larger data set, which uh, you assume only a negligible uh, portion of it uh, has to do with, with hateful expressions, right? And then you try to compare them in some way and see what makes one different from the other. 
and you say, well, these are potential candidates for hateful expression. So now all I need to do is to maybe manually filter them or do some kind of hand correction or maybe even not that. Uh, so, you know, so there the ability of a particular human to impose his or her, uh, you know, very uh, specific and potentially irrelevant uh, predispositions is, is reduced. Omri Abend, uh, thank you very much. Gladly. This was Lex Kibernetica. Lex Kibernetica. More episodes are available at the Hebrew University Cybersecurity Research Center site at csrcl.huji.ac.il.